Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, in this Christmas season, we do reflect on the amazing mystery that you would become a man. Lord, that you would be born a man and humble yourself as a lowly child and come to the earth and live a perfect life in our stead. That you would live among us fallen rebels and even serve us and love us and care for us and speak the truth to us and ultimately give your life and sacrifice for us. Oh, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We glorify you and with the angels we sing about your glory and we rejoice in our hearts and we... uh, are filled with awe and wonder at this great mystery. I pray, Lord, that as we celebrate this Advent, this Christmas season, and consider the great things that you have done, that you would help us to come to know you even better, that, Lord, you would draw us nearer than ever before, and that, God, you would open our eyes anew to see your glory, encourage our faith and strengthen our hope and our resolve, Lord, to live holy lives that glorify you and, Lord, that we might be pleasing children in your house. And we thank you for this great privilege. This morning, Lord, as we look into this text in 2 Thessalonians, I pray, O God, that you would open our eyes to see what you have spoken of in Scripture O God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith to look with eager anticipation at the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, when in fact he will arrest all evil in the world and put to flight his enemies. O God, we look forward to that day, and we uh, look forward hoping that it will be soon and very soon, Lord. We honor you and we bless you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, with that, uh, I want to remind you about some book recommendations that I've made in the past and I'm making again right now so you don't forget. And if going through this has opened up a can of worms for you and you have a lot of questions, then these are good resources for you to look into. The first one is this book by George Ladd called The Blessed Hope. Okay, The Blessed Hope. This book catalogs the rise of the doctrine of pre-tribulational premillennialism and then it it speaks to those texts from a historical premillennial viewpoint and um, that's the blessed hope by George Ladd then there's another book here called a case for historic premillennialism by Craig Blomberg okay this is actually a collection of 10 essays written by 10 different guys uh, speaking about different aspects of historic premillennialism, okay? And then also this book called The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views uh, by Klaus. And this book uh, talks about four different views of the millennium, those being amillennialism, postmillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, and historic premillennialism, okay? That's what this book is all about. 
So uh, this will help you understand the differences between those millennial views, okay? Uh, okay, with that, I want to just briefly uh, remind you of our lesson from last week where I was taking and comparing the text of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and I was com comparing that to the Olivet Discourse. And I was showing you that how in Paul's mind and in Paul's chronology that he lays out in 2 Thessalonians, that it fits perfectly with Jesus' chronology in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse. And uh, so, if you will, uh, of course, that's on the lessons. Uh, we covered page, about midway through page 87 all the way through... Um, about halfway down page 90. And there I dealt with the understanding and the doctrine of eminency. And, uh, of course, that is the discussion about the eminent return of Christ. And uh, I talked at length about the idea that Christ could not return at any moment because that there are signs which precede his coming which he clearly told us about, which Paul clearly told us about, which certainly have not yet happened in the course of history. Not only that, but those signs are there for the purpose of being signs. And of course I discussed what that purpose was. And um, if you weren't here last week, you might want to listen to that. I think there was a lot of valuable information might have been the most important lesson I teach in trying to understand uh, the idea of post-tribulational premillennialism and, and uh, what other texts in the Bible really are the fundamental texts. And, of course, that's Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, which is also recorded in Mark 13 and in Luke 21. But um, I just want to remind you that as we're going through this thing and you're trying to understand the different aspects of this, that in my view, the Olivet Discourse is the infrastructure for understanding the sequence and chronology of how the end time events will unfold. Because Jesus spoke about almost every single one of the end time events in a sort of an overview perspective. And when he did that, he gave a very clear chronology as to how and when they would unfold and which event would precede the others and how it would all lead up to the second coming and the rapture itself. And uh, which, of course, in Paul's writing in First and Second Thessalonians is called the parousia, which his most vivid picture of that is in chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, where we see the first resurrection and the rapture of the living saints at that time. That is what's in view in the text that we're studying right now, which is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where there Paul says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. And then he goes on with a discussion about some sequence and some chronology of events. And he says, basically, that hasn't happened to you Thessalonians yet. And the reason why we know is because... The apostasy has not taken place yet, and the man of lawlessness has not been revealed. And uh, that kind of brings us to our text this morning, uh, which is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, 
where the Antichrist is named. And um, so as some preparation for the class, I've been trying to encourage you to read what the Bible has to say about this Antichrist because it's very important. When Paul brings up the Antichrist, or the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, he immediately brings us into the context of the whole Bible. Because that figure is an Old Testament figure, namely from the book of Daniel, where there is much discussion about him. He is the, uh, the object of four different visions that Daniel has. Um, or should I say he's at least mentioned in four different visions that Daniel has in chapter 2, in chapter 7, in chapter 8 and 9, and then again in chapters 11 and 12. And uh, if you will, Daniel has a whole lot to say about him, and not only that, but it, it comes in the different contexts of these visions that Daniel's having. So the, the role that Antichrist plays in each of those visions is still the same person, but if you will, he's presented in a little bit slightly different context in each one of those visions. Uh, not only that, but then also Jesus mentions that in the Olivet Discourse as a yet future event that's going to happen just prior to his second coming and just prior to the rapture. This is what Jesus says that we're going to see happen. Verse 21, when you see standing, verse 15, when you see standing in, in, uh, in the holy place, the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, right? Let the reader understand. He says then, verse 21, there will be a time of great tribulation such as not happened from the beginning of nations until that time, nor ever shall be. If those days had not been cut short, no flesh would, be, would survive. But for the sake of the elect. elect, those days would be cut short. And then he goes on, of course, talking about how those days will be a time of great deception of false Christs and false prophets and many people being misled. And, of course, that leads up to the text of the second coming in the rapture where Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, listen, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels, and they will gather together his elect from one end of the heavens to the other end of the earth, he says. And so, if you will, uh, Jesus is giving this very clear chronology, and <clears throat> Paul when he uh, brings up this man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians, has a whole lot to say about him. He actually speaks about him for about 12 verses. And uh, he gives some very clear insight how that Old Testament figure from Daniel is going to apply in the New Testament context. Okay? And with that, I want to give you an encouragement. Please go away this week. And read the chapters in Daniel concerning the Antichrist. Chapter 7, chapter 8, and 9, chapter 11 and 12. And if you want to just read 7 through 12, that's great. Because 10 really is a part of that. It just doesn't really have any content dealing with the Antichrist himself. But 
When you go and you read Daniel, I want you to think about this idea that I'm going to tell you about, and it's this. When Daniel is writing and speaking about the true faith of God in his day and in his context, that was a very Jewish thing. And what was in view in Daniel's mind was God dwelled in his temple on Jerusalem. And what was in view in Daniel's mind was the sins were atoned for by sacrificing animals. And it was done through the priestly service. And it was done on the holy mountain in that place where God dwells. And if you will, Daniel has a very old covenant, Old Testament mindset of the true worship of God. Why? Because he's a Jew living some 600 years before Christ is even born. And he's speaking from the sense of Old Testament understanding. He had no clue what was about to happen when Jesus got there in the context of the whole New Testament and the, the uh, decline of the age of Judaism and everything that the Lord Jesus Christ brought. He didn't understand the new covenant age is what I am telling you. Okay. However, you do understand the new covenant age. And you do understand how the decline of Judaism took place when Jesus came. And not only that, you saw God's divine thumbprint right on top of the Temple Mount, which was a commentary on what God thinks about the Jewish system of religion moving forward from the time of the Messiah. You understand what I'm saying? You understand that now the true worship of God centers around the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who himself is a fulfillment of all of the old covenant age and everything that was contained therein. Okay? So here's what I want you to do when you go read Daniel. Think about when Daniel's writing and he's speaking about events that are in the grand future apocalypse at the end of the last days, that... When he speaks in reference to events concerning the true worship of God, he doesn't have in mind what's going on in the new covenant age, but you do. So when you think about that true worship of God in the context of the new covenant age, with that as a background, with the Christian gospel in the background, and the true worship of God, which is a worship of the person and the work of Jesus himself, Okay, I think you'll gain some really new insights into what Daniel is talking about and why his language is so uh, strangely apocalyptic. And not only that, but who these saints are in the book of Daniel, where in no other Old Testament book is the people of God referred to as the saints of the Most High, like Daniel refers to them. And if you consider who the saints of the Most High are in the course of history when the Antichrist shows up again before the second coming of Christ, of course, you know who those saints are. Anybody who, of course, is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a saint of the Most High. Okay? Then you'll begin to see Daniel with, I think, a much clearer vision. Now, let me just qualify this. Part of the reason why <clears throat> pre-tribulational premillennialists or dispensational premillennialists read their Bible the way they do is because they make a very sharp distinction between the church and Israel. And effectively, if you will, they believe that the time between the cross and the time of the rapture is what we call the times of the Gentiles. 
And it is when, in their mind, God has chosen to redeem a people from every tribe and language and nation and people from among the Gentiles. And that when Christ is done calling out that people, that Gentile people, he's going to rapture the church. And that will inaugurate the seven-year tribulation, which is also, in dispensational thinking, the 70th week of Daniel, okay? Which is that seven-year period just prior to the coming of Christ where the Antichrist at the midpoint uh, commits the abomination of desolation, okay? So what's going on in the dispensational mind is <clears throat> when they read Daniel and they see the old covenant Jewish language spoken of as the true worship of God, they believe that's because that is going to be re-inaugurated during the time of the tribulation period in a new, newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Okay? So you need to understand that the difference between that kind of a mindset and historical premillennialism is what I just described to you. Okay? One sees that time of the tribulation period as a time of Jewish fulfillment of the 70th week of Daniel. And they have a lot of really good reasons why that ought to be that way. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 says that the 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. Okay, and of course when they, when they read your people, they are saying that that is strictly a Jewish thing. Okay, and so there is this whole Jewish context to the understanding of dispensationalism when it comes to reading the book of Daniel, okay? I'm asking you to consider the book of Daniel from a slightly different viewpoint, okay? And it's this, that when Daniel describes the true worship of God in his veiled Old Covenant language of the Old Testament, not knowing what the New Covenant age is like, that you understand that he doesn't have insight into what the New Covenant age is. And he doesn't understand how Christ has brought the fulfillment of Judaism. And now there is no temple. God doesn't have a, a place where his name dwells now. Okay? God dwells now in the heart of the believer. That thought was void in the mind of the Old Testament prophets. They didn't have a clue. They didn't understand what God was going to bring about in the New Testament age. And I'm, I'm simply asking that you would consider Daniel's statements about that grand and future apocalypse as uh, views into the new covenant age, which you know what they look like. You know and understand what this day and time holds. And you know what the true worship of God is now in this age, wherein the Antichrist is going to come. Okay? So, um, okay, I think I covered everything I was going to cover there. That being said, I want to read to you from the book of Revelation as a background on this person of the Antichrist who Paul mentions in verse 4. Because what we have here is the recording in John's Apocalypse of the abomination of desolation. Not only that, we see the rise of the Antichrist to power. We see his, uh, the scope of his influence described in this chapter. We see the subjects of his persecution. And we see the subjects of his deception. 
and we have uh, what is described as both a religious and an economic system that is established by this world ruler. Okay? All right here in Revelation chapter 13. Okay? So with that, I'm going to read uh, Revelation chapter 13. This is the word of the Lord. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man and his number is 666. Amen. So, if you will, uh, there is a character here in Revelation chapter 13 who is at the center of it all. There he is, the first beast, the beast out of the sea. And he does those things which are therein described. This, in fact, is the man 
of lawlessness that Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. He's the same man that Daniel was describing in those various chapters that I have mentioned. So, when Paul brings this man up, it's important for you to understand who he's talking about. And it's important for you to understand what the Bible has to say about him and who he is and what he does. Okay? And it's important for you to kind of piece together the different things that the Scripture says in order for you to get a really full-orbed view of who this guy is. Had you read only Daniel, okay, you'd only know so much. And the language with which Daniel speaks, you have to understand something about Daniel's prophecy, okay? Daniel's prophecy has both a near and a far fulfillment. How many of you already know that? Okay? Daniel's prophecy has a near and a far fulfillment. In the near fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy... There was an actual temple, and there was an actual man who came and desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. There was a, uh, uh, he is a, the, the king of the south, the Seleucid king, uh, is described in detail in Daniel chapter 11, where the, 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 the prophecies that Daniel is speaking about what this king will do are amazingly accurate when it comes to the, the near fulfillment of these prophecies, Okay. That, what I mean by near fulfillment is that he's the first fulfillment. There is a yet greater future fulfillment of that Antichrist figure whom Jesus says even at his time has not yet come to pass. You understand? Jesus clearly tells us that there is a far fulfillment of the person of the Antichrist. Because the near fulfillment was, of course, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king, <laughs> who did what he did in 165 B.C. Okay? So here's what I'm saying. Daniel in his prophecy is describing this Seleucid king. And he's describing what he will do and how he'll make war and who he'll make war with and what he'll do and how he'll desecrate the, the temple and how he'll put an, an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay? And in a very Jewish context, this man has a literal fulfillment of all those things that Daniel was describing. Nevertheless, there is a much greater future fulfillment of this king who is a global king, who, who the whole world follows and worships him, okay? And he does what he does in a new covenant age, not in an old covenant age, you understand? And so if you will, Daniel, uh, the things that he says do have a very Jewish fulfillment. And not only that, an extremely accurate Jewish fulfillment because this man in Antiochus Epiphanes did do all those things. He desecrated the altar. He put an end to sacrifice and offering. He, he fulfilled, I, I can't tell you how many different prophecies in the book of Daniel chapter 11, the chapter Daniel 11 alone. It, it, there, there's multiple prophecies about who he is and what he'll do and who he'll make war with. And all of that came to pass with perfect accuracy in the war between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Okay, so I'm trying to get you to understand the context and the background of all of these things. They're very important to understand when you try to understand the person of the Antichrist. Okay, so Paul mentions him in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And he, he, there he calls him the man of lawlessness 
the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Take note here that Paul gives this man two titles. He is called both the man of lawlessness and also the son of destruction. How'd you like to have a name like that? <laughs> Don't think so. Notice he is characterized by lawlessness and also destruction. These things are the very things that the Bible elsewhere describes as the things that characterize this man and his evil works. And even though he is the chief human opponent of God and Christ in the world, he will fulfill all that God has planned and decreed for him, and he will perfectly fulfill God's plan in culminating this current age. This is surely the one which Daniel spoke of. For example, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 and through 22, and then also in verse 25, Daniel writes, I kept looking, and that horn... Of course, in, in, the, in, the, in the vision there, he is this horn, okay, which is a symbol of power. And he says, as I watched, the, that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Does that sound like the language of Revelation 13? Until the Ancient of Days came. He was making war with the saints and overpowering them. When? when? Until. Until when? The Ancient of Days came. You sound like the language of Olivet Discourse? There will be great tribulation when that abomination of desolation occurs, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until that time. But if those days had not been cut short, no flesh would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he's persecuting and overpowering, those days will be cut short. How? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. The day of the Lord will come, and that will cut short this man's reign, this man's rule. And of course, we see that in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes, first order of business, Antichrist in the lake of fire. Right? This is the great day of deliverance of the church, the parousia of Christ. So, if you will, he goes on. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Verse 25, And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Again, Revelation 13 says 42 months right of course Daniel's words here a time time and half a time means three and a half years three and a half years is 1260 days 1260 days is 42 months he's mentioned again in Daniel chapter 8 and of course the, the he's mentioned several places there I'm quoting here verses 23 and following and in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. Sound like the language of 2 Thessalonians 2? 
that the coming of the lawless one will be in accord with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles and lying signs and wonders. Right? Listen, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. You see, he's the son of destruction. And this is how Daniel describes him. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. Jesus said of that time, there was not a terrible time like that on the face of the earth from the beginning of nations until that time. What time? When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Jesus says at that time, there will be a time of great tribulation such as unequaled from the beginning of nations until that time. Daniel describes his destruction to an extraordinary degree. And he will prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. I want to ask you a question. In this new covenant age, who are the holy people? Christians, you understand what I'm saying about reading Daniel with the background of the New Covenant age? Let me tell you, if they built a temple tomorrow and started offering blood sacrifices in that place, there wouldn't be a holy people on those grounds. That would be an abomination to God. You understand what I'm saying? Amen. I am not saying they won't rebuild the temple. <laughs> what I am saying is if they rebuild the temple right now, that is not something that will be pleasing to God. And any drops of blood that are shed on that thing will be an abomination to God, of which God has already commented some 1,900 years ago. Are you with me? Okay? So <clears throat> you kind of have to understand Daniel and, and the background of, of what he's describing that's going to take place in the future. It says, going on there in verse 25, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. Who's that? Who is the prince of princes? Jesus. <laughs> That's why there's a capital P there. But he will be broken without human agency. Who's he going to oppose? Okay, question. In this new covenant age, before Jesus returns, how do you oppose the prince of princes? By opposing his gospel. You understand? The work of Christ in the world is done by the mediation of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what we're all about. That's what the church is all That's why you're here. That's why you're forgiven. That's why you are a people. Because of the gospel message. We don't go out and take the kingdom by war. We don't go out and take the kingdom by force. Right? When you oppose the church, what do you oppose? You tell lies, you deceive, you lead people astray. It's what we see in every false religion in the world. The opposition to Christ. How do the Mormons oppose Christ? They redefine who he is. Jehovah's Witness do the same thing. Right? Dare I mention Roman Catholicism. Where what they have uh, uh, deceived about is not the person of Christ, but the work of Christ. And now the cross 
And the atonement of Christ is insufficient to save. Why? Because you must add your works to it in order to be saved. That's an opposition to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm trying to get in your mind. What does it mean to oppose the prince of princes? What does that look like before the second coming of Christ? Islam is another perfect example. What have we done? We've redefined the nature of God and we've redefined the nature of, of, of the gospel, how somebody gets saved and made right with God. Are you with me? There's only one Christian faith, family, and it's very exclusive. There's only one door. There's only one narrow way because there's only one Lamb of God who died for your sins. Are you with me? What you're in bad need of is atonement. <laughs> That's what you're in bad need of because you've been alienated from God. That's the message of the gospel. The gospel is focused on the person and work of Christ. Okay? So we talk about opposing Christ. When Jesus says there's going to be many false prophets and false Christs arise and deceive many people, how are they going to do that? By what means? By lying about the gospel. By lying about Christ. By lying when a false Christ is presenting himself as somebody who's in the place of Jesus. You understand when the Antichrist does that, he's going to be the ultimate false Christ. And the whole world is going to follow him and worship him. You understand? This is how he's going to oppose God and exalt and magnify himself above every so-called God. You understand? Okay. Sorry, this is just, as I read these verses in Daniel, it's just completely seasoned in my understanding with the new covenant age and what it's all about. Understand? Daniel 9, 27, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, that is, for seven years. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Now, that was fulfilled perfectly uh, by Antiochus Epiphanes. He did that very thing. He, he put um, an end to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Okay, so there the, co the covenant that the Antichrist makes um, is in view. And there the abomination of desolation is in view. And it's also mentioned again in chapter 11 where there's far more details about what's happening and who this person is that are brought up. For example, Daniel chapter 11, verse 36 and following. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. Sound like the language of Revelation 13? Sound like the language of 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4? Right? And he will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. You see what Daniel's saying? He's saying, God's going to let this guy live. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't worry, people. This thing's in the hands of God. And this thing's going to run its course until it's finished. And that's what's been decreed by God. That's what Daniel's saying, okay? So also, Jesus speaks of him in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And then he goes on, of course, and describes that. 
And also John speaks of him in the Revelation, chapter 13, verses 5 through 9. There he says, And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. How long is that? A time, times, and half a time, right? It was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. Now, who is his tabernacle? You got it. Those who dwell in the tabernacle here is beings. It's not a place. You understand? He goes on. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written in the, from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. He's mentioned again in Revelation chapter 19. And of course, this is the, his destruction. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. That very event is also pictured in 2 Thessalonians 2 where Paul says, I think it's verse 7, that the Lord Jesus is going to destroy him with the appearance of his coming with the brightness, in another translation, of his coming. Of this man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, Paul says that he is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Consider, in the scope of who this man is and his popularity among the people of the world, who will all follow him, that this opposition to God must be really severe. In this new covenant age of Christianity, how does one oppose God? You oppose God by speaking lies and perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeking to silence those who preach the gospel and work to evangelize the world. You want to oppose God? Duct tape the mouth on all the Christians. You with me? Daniel chapter 8 gives specific insight into this Antichrist as one who flings the truth to the ground and tramples it, and also one who destroys the mighty men and the holy people. And uh, reading here from Daniel chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. Now, let me just give you a little insight here. Both in Daniel chapter 7 and in Daniel chapter 8, what, what happens is Daniel has a vision, and he sees this apocalyptic vision, and, and then an angel comes and explains it to him. So you have the first part of what he saw in his vision as he described it. And, and then you have the angel giving the interpretation as to what all the signs mean, both in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. Okay? And so, but what, what, what happens is, and you, when you go back and you read Daniel 7 and 8, you'll see this. Some of the things that he says when he's describing his vision are slightly different than the way that the angel describes, and it helps give you added insight as to what's happening with this Antichrist. Okay? Remember that, and you'll see exactly what I mean. But remember that this angel is going to explain what the vision means. 
So in this first part of Daniel 8, verses 11 through 13, this is what comes from the vision. But then the latter part, verses 24 through 25, is where the angel is giving a description and an explanation of what, what that is. Okay, so follow me. Daniel chapter 8, verses 11 and following. There he's talking about, when he says it, he's talking about the little horn who is the Antichrist in this vision. Okay. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Who's that? Jesus. Capital C. Get that? Commander of the... He magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. (laughs) Church, where is the sanctuary of Christ? Do you understand in Daniel's old covenant mindset, that means a temple on the Mount of Moriah in Jerusalem. Okay? But he doesn't know anything about what happened after Christ returned. Okay? That's why you got to take one of two views here. Either you read Daniel with a very dispensational mindset, believing that there's going to be a future Judaism at the time that the Antichrist arrives, or you understand and read these things with the understanding of the new covenant age okay and that may be a real difficult thing for you to sort out this morning here in sunday school (laughs) so you're going to have to chew on that for a while okay but you'll see what i mean as you're reading through daniel and you're pondering and meditating on these things and you'll get more insight as you think about it and not only that it'll help you also to understand dispensationalism okay which by the way i i've told you many times i affirm all the fundamental tenets of dispensationalism. My struggle comes with how they apply dispensational understanding to the the unfolding of the end-time events during the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Okay. I'm sorry. I was reading Daniel 8. (laughs) It magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling the truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will a vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? Okay, now that's what Daniel saw in his vision. And here in chapter 8, verses 24 and 25 is a little bit of the description that the angel gives. And his power, that is the little horn here, the Antichrist, will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Notice what Daniel said in verse 811 which is explained in 825, that he magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And also, he will even oppose the prince of princes. 
This, of course, is how Paul identifies the Antichrist in our text, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. He is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Notice Paul describes Antichrist as not only opposing God, but exalting himself above every so-called God or object of worship. This the Antichrist does with words. He is a liar sent to deceive and to mislead people into believing what is false. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 11. Antichrist is identified by his boastful mouth in several places in scripture and identified as one who opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. He is a lying false prophet, a usurper of God's authority, who blasphemes the name of God and does deceiving signs and wonders in order to deceive the people of the world. Note well, the end time deception of Antichrist is a war on the truth of the gospel. You understand what I'm saying here about the Antichrist? His opposition is against the true faith. His opposition is against the Christian gospel. His opposition is against the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does he do that? He does that by telling lies. He is a liar. And in his lies, he seeks to usurp the place of Christ. That's why he's called the Antichrist. Okay? Which is the idea of a pseudo-Christ or in the place of Christ. Okay? He seeks to exalt and, and oppose, oppose Christ and exalt himself above Christ. He is going to speak unheard of things, Daniel says, against the God of gods. He is going to speak blasphemies against the Lord Jesus Christ that you have never imagined. And he's going to do it in public. And through his message, he's going to get the whole world to follow him. Imagine what that looks like. That is some amazing deception. Let me tell you. Daniel 7.25 says, He will speak out. This is his boastful mouth. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Daniel 11.36, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And there was given to him a mouth, Revelation 13, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. You see, this guy is characterized by his mouth. You know why? Because he's a prophet. Now, I'm not talking about the false prophet who's in view in Revelation 13. I'm talking about the Antichrist himself. He is also a prophet. And he has got a prophetic message for the people of the world. And his mouth, the Bible says, is exalted toward heaven. That he speaks blasphemies and unheard of things against God. Okay? This guy is going to be identified by the Christians simply by how boastful and arrogant his mouth is against God. And you know what? Every true Christian is going to be utterly and absolutely offended by the things that he says. And the people in the world, 
are going to say, yeah, that's that Jesus Christ we've been blaspheming all our life. The people in the world are going to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Now we understand. Now, now we get this whole secular humanism thing. It all makes sense. Right? Mark the words of the Bible well. Antichrist is identified by his mouth and the lies that come out of it. Okay? As Paul is going to describe later here in our text in 2 Thessalonians. All of this he does with tremendous success. Think about how in these verses I've read to you, the Bible says he's going to prosper. He's going to succeed. It says that over and over. Right? He's going to do what he does until the indignation is finished. Right? All of this he does with tremendous success because it is in the purpose of God for these very final days of the gospel age to test the people of the earth to see where their allegiance lies. It is, is it with the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the Christian gospel or is it with the false economic and religious system of Antichrist who comes with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Why did they perish? Because they didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now what truth must you embrace in order to be saved? The person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is expressed in the gospel. You understand why the people of the world perish? You understand what they're following when they follow Antichrist? It's a lie. It's a lie about the truth of the gospel. Okay? He's going to come on the scene. He's going to say, I am the man. Right? And the Bible says God will send a deluding influence so that they will perish who did not love the truth so as to be saved. He is so successful at his endeavors because God has purposed in his sovereign will for this deception to come upon the rebel world of sinners and bring to a final end the kingdoms of this world. This is evident from the following verses. Daniel 7.25 They will be given into his hand for a time times and half a time. Daniel 11, verses 11 and following. It will be magnified. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host and removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling the truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. You understand how Paul describes that? Paul describes that as the Antichrist coming with lying deception, with lying signs and wonders, and deceiving the people of the world so that, that don't love the truth. You understand? It's in opposition against the Christian gospel. This is how he flings the truth to the ground. Daniel 11.37 says, And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. You understand? The Bible has spoken about these events as yet future. You know what that means, right? It means they're going to happen. Just like the Bible said. And this is what 
Daniel is saying here. What has been decreed will be done. Amen? 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Here's what's going to happen during the time of the tribulation, which is the rise of the Antichrist to power and his deception and his false religious and economic system whereby you worship that image that he sets up or you be killed or you take that mark on your right hand or your forehead or you can't buy, sell, or trade. When he does all that stuff, here's what God is doing. He's drawing a big line in the sand. And he's saying to the people of this world who have had so much revelation about the Lord Jesus Christ, even thousands of years of gospel preaching, and have yet rejected God's only sacrifice, his son. God is drawing a line in the sand, and he's saying, which side of that line are you going to stand on? And you don't get to stand on the fence either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ain't no fence in this day. You get it? You see? You understand? God, listen, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth, but instead took pleasure in wickedness. Here's the deal. Do you love your sin or do you love Jesus Christ? You with me? We should note well how the sovereignty of God is in view in our text in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Paul describes the terrible end-time deception of the man of lawlessness, but all the while gives indication that God is in control of these things and exactly how and when they will unfold. Even the great boastful and blaspheming mouth of Antichrist will serve the purpose of God in the end. And Christ will come and finally defeat this evil worker at the proper time. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 In fact, God will even allow the unthinkable, as Paul writes, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. The exact meaning of this text is in dispute, as there has not been a temple of God since the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Listen. What's really clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Antichrist is going to come, the rebellion is going to occur, the abomination of desolation is going to take place, there's going to be a tremendous deception, and this man of destruction is going to wreak havoc on the face of the earth, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until that time. And if you think about some of the destruction that's taken place in history up till now, it's been bad at points in history. Are you with me? It ain't a drop in the bucket compared to what is going to happen under the rise of Antichrist to power. And, listen, the 42 months that are given to him to work his will and do his thing. You understand? But the language of that time being given to him speaks about God's sovereignty. Okay? God has decreed that these things should be. And God is the one who is in view as in control. In every one of these texts, in Daniel, in 2 Thessalonians, in the Olivet Discourse, and also in Revelation chapter 13. God is the one who is in control. And what he decrees is going to take place. Okay? So, 
um, you have to understand that God allows this guy to live. <laughs> that is what's shocking to me. This guy has a blasphemous mouth and says unheard of things about the God of gods. Who, by the way, is Jesus Christ. He's the commander of the host. He's the prince of princes who this guy opposes and exalts himself and magnifies himself over. So much so that this is what Paul says, that he will take his seat in the temple of God and declare himself as being God or display himself as being God. Imagine that. And God lets this guy live. Okay? So, I want to give you some hope and some encouragement. I, I know that when, peop, when, when I talk about post-tribulationalism, a lot of you shudder in your shoes. <laughs> and I want to just encourage you by telling you this. God is in control. This is nothing but a light and momentary affliction that's achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. And furthermore, the last ones to go will be first in the kingdom. You understand? You get my meaning? And there are glorious things that are said about those who endure through this time period. Whether or not it will be in my life or your life, I can't tell you. But these events are recorded here in Scripture for our admonition. Are you with me? So the best thing you can do is be one of those wise virgins and have oil in your lamp. (coughs) Which means you better be on fire and serving the Lord Jesus with all your heart when this day of deception arrives. Because when it arrives, it is going to be one powerful day of deception. Okay? That even the very elect would be deceived if that were possible. But we know that's not possible, right? Amen. Amen. Okay. With that, we'll pray and we'll pick up here next week. God, our Father, we honor you and we bless you and we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Lord, as we read about these things and this evil man in Scripture, Lord, we have a tendency to fear. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to hear Jesus' admonition that we're not to fear men, but to fear God. That man is not to be our dread, but the Holy One of Israel. He is to be our dread. He is to be our fear. And so, Lord, we look to you and we reverence you and we honor you. And we realize that you're bringing this evil world to a culmination. And we pray, O God, that you would cause us to be mighty in the faith. Lord, to be strong and firmly rooted and grounded in the love and in the grace that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be warning many of this coming deception, O God, even as we see it unfolding before our eyes. And Lord, I pray that you would fill our mouth with praises, with glory, and with honor as we glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. And may our mouth never look like the blaspheming, boastful, wicked mouth of Antichrist but may it always and continually be filled with your praise. We honor you and we bless you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.